0: Well, good morning to you. I was uh, out of town last Sunday with my family. We were in North Carolina for a family wedding. And so I wasn't here on the first Sunday of the month, which was actually um, technically the first Sunday when Carly Hallman was on our staff. So Carly and Mark are here. I know in the back there, up near the back. And um, so I just wanted to, to take a quick moment to acknowledge how glad I am that Carly has joined our ministry staff part-time as Director of Women's Ministry, and she will do a great job at developing and directing women's ministry among us. And so I hope that you can be excited with me along with that. I know that you can and will be, and we'll enjoy the blessings that God brings to us through Carly. So Carly, we're thankful for you. Thanks for being part of us. Um, last week, Alex preached on uh, a, sort of a tricky parable. This is what, what pastors do they leave town. They, they give to their associate pastor the tricky parable to preach, and, and that was totally intentional. Um, so um, he had this parable about the dishonest manager, which is about, about using worldly wealth to accomplish God's desires. It's kind of a tricky parable. And the context of that parable continues into verse 14. Of Luke 16 which you have before you on page 6 of your bulletin and it leads Jesus into another sort of parable story to show a man who does not use his wealth for kingdom purposes and so you young ones you young Christians among us as you listen and pay attention to this reading of scripture as Jesus tells the story there's a rich man in the story who asks father Abraham to do something for his brothers. And it's a strange request. So you young ones, pay attention and see if you can see what that request is. This is Luke 16, beginning in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, that is the parable from last week, and they ridiculed him. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, But God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And so the man said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, help us yet again to understand your word. We pray that you would give us your spirits, even as you have given us your word so that we might understand what it is that you desire for us to see and know about you and your good news for us. Lord, help us to believe, help us to turn to you and trust in you more and more. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Money is something of a sensitive subject, and this is, of course, a story about money. Ordinarily, you don't just ask somebody how much they make. Normally, that would be an odd question. Ordinarily, you don't ask somebody how much they spend or how much their house costs or how much money they give. Normally, you wouldn't ask those questions because money is something of a private matter. And yet, it has a very public visibility. It's fairly clear who has and who has not, to some degree, somewhat. I mean, think about the day laborer on Park Lane down near Greenville Avenue. If you've driven by there and, and seen people gathering their day laborers, th- those folks know, if you drive by in your car, they, they know that at least you have a, a working car and maybe some decently nice clothes. And if I drive by there, they can see me and recognize that man probably could hire us for a few hours of work, and they'd be right. So, you know, it's, it's somewhat obvious. The Bible speaks of material wealth and money and all that it brings so often, I think, because it's, it's really a staple part of our lives. You know, you can't bake bread without flour. You can't bake a cake without sugar. If you did, nobody would eat it, right? Right? Those things are staple, fundamental elements of what it means to be bread or what it means to be cake. And material wealth is a staple element of our lives, whether for you that's abundance or scarcity, either way, material goods are a staple all the same. We wear clothes on our backs and we have shoes on our feet, we have a car in the driveway perhaps or maybe just a bus pass in our pocket. Maybe you got books on the shelves and food on the table, whether it's fresh food from Fresh Market or it's canned food from the discount store. Either way, you have those things. We live our lives with things, and things are necessary, and things are good. In fact, they're so good that our hearts are prone to believe in things more than in the one who gave them. Things lend an immediacy of satisfaction that the kingdom of God and its purposes just don't. And that immediacy of satisfaction is a staple element of our fallen condition. So that was one of the points of the parable of the dishonest manager last week. If worldly people, motivated by material wealth, take shrewd actions to increase their material standing in this world, then why don't Christians, motivated by heavenly hope, take shrewd actions to advance kingdom purposes? That's the point of that parable. If material wealth, being temporary as it is, can so motivate people, then why can't heavenly hope, being eternal, motivate people in the same way? And the answer is really probably pretty simple. I think it's this. We don't really believe in heaven. We don't really have a a clear concept that presses in on us about heaven. We think that what we have, or at least that what we hope to acquire, is somehow sufficient to meet our needs. And so we waste the master's possessions. We squander what God has given us. We embezzle, as it were, His gifts for our own immediate benefit rather than shrewdly using them for blessing others and for working kingdom purposes in this world. You can serve God with money. But you cannot serve God and money. But simple worldly greed is really not the heart of the matter. There's something else that lies beneath in what Jesus is after here. And a critical audience that he has on the periphery of the first parable that you heard last week gives Jesus an opportunity to expose what it is that lies beneath the surface. And what is it? It's this. We don't believe that God himself is enough. We struggle to believe that. The one who made all things, the one who spoke and there was light, the one who made man from the dust of the ground, the one who set the stars in the heavens, we don't believe that God is enough. And so with a quick review of the authority of Scripture and then with a fanciful yarn, as it were, about heaven and hell, Jesus insists here that God's gospel and the word with which he gives it are enough. Enough to sustain us. They are the staples that we need. So first of all, God's gospel is enough. These Pharisees <clears throat> had heard the parable of the shrewd manager and they didn't like it. I suppose they felt convicted by it. They didn't like it. And so they responded defensively. They, ri- they ridiculed Jesus for it, Luke tells us right here. They ridiculed him for it because They were lovers of money. They didn't want him to criticize their money. But there was something more in their hearts, and Jesus immediately goes to it. He says to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Now, more than money, these men had in their hearts a subtle disease that is very common to man. It's called self justification. And we all do it. Every time we explain ourselves, we do it. Years ago, I received a traffic ticket in the mail. And, you know, I pulled it out of the envelope and it had a photograph of the back of our minivan with the license plate. And normally, that would cause me to blame Mary for it because she's usually the one driving the minivan. But it also had a date and a time of the alleged infraction and i kind of worked my way back on the calendar and i realized that was the very time when i was driving mary and the kids to the airport i was the one behind the wheel at the time and and this ticket suggested i'm saying suggested because i'm self-justifying it suggested that we had run a red light now i don't run red lights i promise you i i see people do it and i realize how dangerous it is i don't run red lights but you know, sometimes a yellow one maybe, I don't know. But, so I was curious, and I, I called our insurance company to ask about it because I was kind of concerned it was going to raise our insurance rates, and I, and I called them, I asked, and they said, they said, no, you know, the camera-mounted police at the intersection, they don't really count towards your insurance, it's not going to raise your rates. You know, this, this person on the other line was really helpful to my self-justification. And she said, no, you know, the camera can't actually prove anything because I had already told her there were no police there. There was nobody there. She said, you're right, the camera can't really prove anything. And, and then she said this. She said, this happens all the time. Probably what happened was you turned right on red, and you didn't stop long enough to satisfy the camera. And so when you turn right on red, which you can do legally in Texas, it snapped your picture and it got you. And I thought, that's it. That I turned right on red because I'm a self-justifier, just like you, right? We, we self-justify every time we explain ourselves. Even if you didn't do anything wrong, your guilty conscience still tells you to defend yourself. That's what we do. And that's natural because justification is at the very heart of the gospel. There's a biblical definition of justification which I'm very fond of, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul defines it like this. He says, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the most beautiful sentence describing justification I've ever heard. And it is concise. It shows you the two sides of it, your sin for Jesus' righteousness and His righteousness for your sin. (coughs) And then there's also a theological definition of it. To give you a little bit more, justification, according to the Westminster theologians who wrote the Confession of Faith that we love, describe it this way. They, They said that justification is an act of God's free grace by which He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight, only for the righteousness of Christ credited to us and received by faith alone. That's a really good definition. On the other hand, you might think of a definition of self-justification, and it might go like this. Self-justification is a fabrication of the will by which a man ignores his own sins and declares himself right in his own sight only for his own efforts and received by imagination alone. Now, the Westminster theologians didn't waste their time coming up with that. I did that. I like to waste my time sometimes. And for these Pharisees, self-justification meant maintaining a standard of living, material living, so that the privileged would respect them, and also maintaining a standard of law-keeping so that they could respect themselves. And they mocked Jesus for his view of both of those things, their material standing and their law-keeping. They mocked him for both of those things. And their mockery of him was really a challenge to his authority. It was as if to say to him, who shows the way to God after all, you, rabbi, or we, the religious leaders? It was a challenge to him, and Jesus doesn't ignore the challenge, of course, and he explains to them in verse 16. He says, the law and the prophets were until John, that is, John the Baptist, and Since then, the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached and all are urged to enter it. That is, people are pressing in. People are are urged that they ought to go into this kingdom. But still, the law is in force because the law, the Old Testament, looked forward to the gospel. The law promised the gospel. And in the light of the gospel, the law shows the depth of your self-justifying heart it doesn't uh, it isn't just a woman who's guilty of divorce he's saying to these pharisees these men he, he's saying a man carries the weight of it as well and it, it's an odd comment about divorce that he mentions here he's not trying to to, to to lay down the law on divorce in particular as it were there are some reasons sometimes for a marriage to dissolve but What he's saying is, this is a statement of of his own authority. He is the lawmaker. As it were, he says to them, you self-justifying Pharisees, the law requires more of you than you think. It requires more of you than you can deliver. And if self-justification is what you want, then enjoy it now. Because a day will come when its insufficiency will be obvious. They had rejected the parable regarding the use of wealth to serve God's purposes. And so Jesus gives them another parable, as it were, sort of an odd parable, but a parable nonetheless to show the consequences of rejecting the first one. So verse 19, he begins this. And and the point of this story is not to introduce the geography of heaven and hell, although I I admit it kind of seems to do that. It's not the point of this story it's it's purely illustrative of the geography of heaven and hell rather the point here is to paint a sharp contrast between two men so the first man is this rich man this rich man who's clothed in purple and fine linen and feasts sumptuously every day notice this rich man goes nameless he's anonymous it is as if to say that this is every man And every woman who rejects the shrewd generosity of the first parable. And this man here in this story is a direct contrast to the rich man who's proposed back in verse 9 of the previous parable, the man who makes friends and blesses people by means of his worldly wealth so that when that wealth fails, he or she Will have friends to receive them into eternal dwellings. Now, this generic rich man rejected that. So that's the first man. The second man, of course, is the poor man who waits outside his gates. And this man, notice, has a name. His name is Lazarus. The name means God is my helper. Because that's what God is for all who believe the gospel God is your helper. The one man, the rich man, lives in sumptuous luxury and the other man, Lazarus, lives in humiliating poverty. And it's clear that the difference between these two men is actually twofold. It is economic, but it's also spiritual. So the economic difference is very real. It would be irresponsible for us to just gloss over it and suggest that it's merely symbolic. It's not. When most of the world looks at North America it sees people like this rich man. When most of the the world looks even at this congregation, it sees people who look something like this man. When most of the world, who ever have a chance to look upon me, they see a man who looks kind of like this man. That's just the the relative reality of the economics of our world. We kind of look like this man unless our posture towards the needy shows otherwise. You know, part of the benefit of going on a a short-term mission trip, which our church has taken before to Ecuador and, and elsewhere, and some of you might go on one this summer, part of the benefit of a trip like that is that you are forced to recognize this reality most people in this world just don't have in the way that we have here. We take so much for granted. The material wealth that we have can blind us to the spiritual wealth that we need. So there's the economic difference The spiritual difference then is also very real, and that is justification. That's the difference between these two men. The one took the staple of material wealth, and he rested in that immediate satisfaction that it provided. That is, he self-justified himself before society. And the other, Lazarus, had no staples to claim, worldly speaking, He had no immediate satisfaction to enjoy. In fact, the dogs reminded him of it every day. He had no one to show him mercy except for the one whose mercy is forever. God is my helper. And so he was. The one was self-justified. The other, by faith, was truly justified. Now, the Old Testament draws the economic and the spiritual differences together in a very powerful way at lots of points (coughs) in scripture you heard the reading earlier from deuteronomy 24 there in that reading deuteronomy if, if you know some of your old testament you know the book of deuteronomy is the final speech as it were that moses gives to israel before they enter the promised land so it's a long sermon it is a second giving of the law literally and they're on the verge of entering the promised land, and and Moses reminds them of who they are. He, He says to them, you shall, that is, you must, show grace and patience to any who owe you a debt, whether they are a servant or a stranger. And he says, because remember, you must remember, you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. And he says, you shall, that is, you must, Leave the spare of your harvest in the field for the sojourner, for the stranger, for the fatherless, the widow, the poor. You must do that because, remember, you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Now, that redemption from Egypt is a historical event in time and space history. And Yet it is a historical picture of the fact that God is redeeming and reclaiming us from our sin. That's what it's a picture of. For us, it's a picture of your justification. Remember, you were a slave to your sin, and the Lord your God justified you, so have mercy on those around you. God's good news, His gospel is enough. And so this man, ironically, actually seems to grasp that that fact in his anguish in Hades. And he makes this odd request of Father Abraham. And the, rec- the response to his request is, not only is God's gospel enough, but the word by which he communicates it is also enough. God's word is enough. So one way that you know that this parable is not the place to learn the intricacies of heaven and hell is that this man in anguish in the fires of Hades, actually shows more compassion for his brothers than many young siblings do on a good day. Right? He does. I mean, a man like this, condemned to Hades, (coughs) in reality would be pointing his fingers. He would be accusing He'd be self justifying, wouldn't he? If he had a chance to speak to Father Abraham in heaven from Hades, which he wouldn't, but if he could, he'd be saying, Father Abraham, that guy by your side is a sinner. That's what he'd be saying. And probably much worse, he'd be self justifying, wouldn't he? He wouldn't be showing compassion. But not this, I mean, this, this, the point of this is not, is not that, not to show you the particulars of heaven and hell. The point is that Jesus has set up this parable to make these Pharisees who are listening to him face down the scripture that they claim so proudly. I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my five brothers so that he may warn them lest they come into this place of torment. What does this rich man want? He wants a messenger. He wants a resurrection, actually. He wants a miracle. To, to turn his wealthy, callous brothers to repentance. Now, if this were really what was happening, you would think that it's an opportunity for God, wouldn't you? I mean, you'd think it was a chance for salvation. If, if God is the one who leaves the 99 in search of the one lost sheep, then he'd surely take this request for five lost sheep, wouldn't he? I mean, how hard could it be? He raised one Lazarus from the dead. He could surely raise another one, couldn't he? Maybe God could do that. But, but what does Abraham say? What does Father Abraham say to him? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And, you know, on first read, you've got to admit that sounds kind of dismissive. It, it maybe even sounds uncaring, maybe even callous for Father Abraham to say that. Uh, you know, hey, I know you're in anguish and they're going to be in anguish too, but let them let read a book. Kind of what he said. This is, this is an answer from God himself. But the rich man insists, he, he continues in his ways. He says, no, Father Abraham. Imagine, imagine this. He's, he's in hell and he's trying to tell God what's actually right. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Now, do you ever wonder what it would take to make somebody believe the gospel? do you ever wonder? I mean, what what would it take to turn your hard-hearted family member from their sin? Maybe you, yourself, would really actually begin to believe in heaven if your long-deceased loved one, you know, maybe a, a grandfather that you really loved and were close to has since died and been buried, and yet if your, your grandfather showed up one night late at the foot of your bed as a towering, glorified angel, imagine that, and spoke to you with, with a bold, strong, heavenly voice, you can recognize your grandfather. He seems familiar, but he's so different. He's glorified. And, and he says to you, it's all true. Heaven is here. It's amazing. Believe it and start using your money shrewdly for the kingdom of God. Do you think that if that happened that you would actually begin to believe in heaven? No. Because the next morning you would just think you had indigestion. You you know, you would wake up and think, well, I had a strange dream. I wonder why I had that strange dream. You know? Jesus says, no, that's not the case. He says, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, if they don't listen to the Scripture, if they care not for what God has said in His Word, then neither will they be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. Was he right about that? Yeah. Because just a short time later, he himself rose from the dead. Some people believed. Many people believed. But many people did not. Many people refused still to believe. This rich man wants a sign for his brothers but the fact is what they have been given is enough you know think about it they had the scriptures they could have listened to deuteronomy 14 for example bring all the tithe of your produce out into the town so that the poor and needy can come out and eat or if among you one of your brothers should become poor you shall not harden your heart against him but lend him what he needs Or they could have read from Isaiah 58. They all knew Isaiah. This is the fast I choose, says the Lord, to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own people. They could have read from Ezekiel 18. If a man oppresses the poor and needy, he shall not live. He shall surely die. They could have read from Amos 5. Because you trample on the poor, you will not benefit. I know how great are your sins. That you afflict the righteous and turn aside the needy at the gate. They could have read from Micah 6. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. They could have read any of those things. They had Moses and they had the prophets. Instead, This self-justified man is still seeking self-justification from his anguish in Hades. And that's what the self-justified do. He's still arguing his way. And notice the subtlety of the story. The gospel-justified man, Lazarus, what is he doing the whole time? Nothing. He's just sitting there next to father abraham what does lazarus have to say about the whole thing nothing he's got nothing to say because god's words are enough god has chosen to work miracles through both gospel and through his word by which he's communicated that gospel years ago our church took several mission trips to ecuador to shell ecuador together some of you went on those trips and there in Shell, the town is called Shell, Ecuador, there is a small uh, a, a square in, the, in the, the town center, and there's a fountain there with a makeshift oil rig. It's kind of an odd thing to be there, but it's, it's a nod to the Shell Oil Company that established the town decades ago. And on top of that makeshift oil rig, there's actually a, it's kind of a replica of a yellow single-engine airplane which seems kind of out of place, unless you know the story of the place. That plane is a replica of the airplane that five American missionaries flew in the 1950s. Maybe you know their story. Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and three others, their families, traveled down there. They relocated there from Chicago, I think it was at the time, to reach the unreached in the jungles in that area of Ecuador. Ecuador. And they flew this single-engine yellow plane uh, out to locate and reach the, the Wodani tribe of indigenous people there. And they were received by those people with, with some hesitancy, of course. And, and eventually something went really wrong, and all five of those men were speared to death on the riverbed where they met these people. And their families, of course, you know, once they got the news of it and understood said what had happened to their, their husbands, their fathers, they were terrified, they recoiled, and they wondered, what shall we do? And and then eventually they decided, some of them anyway, decided that the gospel was enough, and they resolved to stay there. They actually resolved to stay there. And over the coming years ahead, some of these American widows and orphans, they forsook the American material wealth that they could have returned to, and they stayed there, they gradually befriended and and even lived with the very killers of their husbands and their fathers. It's a remarkable story. And they showed them, explaining to them God's good news, simply from God's Word. And because God's gospel was enough, and because the Word by which He gave it was enough, a church was born in that place where there was only death before. It's an amazing story. Jesus can't ignore our material wealth. He just can't. He speaks of it a lot in Scripture. And it's a good gift from God. But the immediate satisfaction it offers is no place to rest. God's gospel is enough. Only His justification will endure. And God's word is enough. You don't need new miracles, but rather believe what you have been given in His word. It is Enough in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we pray that you would help us to believe that your good news in Jesus, your justification of us by faith in his righteousness, is enough for us. And help us to believe that the word that you've given to us by which we might know you and believe your good news that that is enough for us that we don't need some miracle some remarkable thing to happen around us so that we might be convinced of you that you might prove yourself to us father help us to see that what you've given to us is enough and help us to live by faith in all that you have given to us for these things we give thanks to you in jesus name amen